0: Let us pray. Almighty God, the unfolding of your word brings light. It gives understanding to the simple. And we pray that as we come before your written word that you would illuminate our minds to understand what you have said and illuminate our hearts to believe what you have said. And we ask this in the name of Christ, amen. What kind of God do we worship? What is God like? What are his qualities, his characteristics, his attributes? We've learned that God has revealed himself through the person of his son. But what kind of God has he revealed himself to be? Now, in the last two weeks, we've learned that John is writing his gospel with a purpose. He's got an aim, a goal in view. John wants us to have life. And he wants us to have that life by believing in the name of Jesus. So for John, who Jesus is, Jesus' identity, is a central concern for his gospel. Because we can only have life in the name of Jesus if Jesus is who John says that he is. So who is Jesus according to John? Well, last week we learned that he is, verse 9, the true light. He is the full and final revelation of God's righteousness and his redemption. In the sermon before that, we learned that Jesus is the word of God. That is, he is God himself and God's agent in all of his works, in creation, in revelation and redemption. God does all things through his word, through Christ. But now as we move into verse 14 and the end of the prologue, John takes that idea, the word of God, and he returns to it and he builds on it. And he says something which is really quite astonishing. Have a look down at verse 14. And we're going to examine the first five words. Verse 14. And the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the word of God, who we learnt in verse 1 was with God and was God, became man. To become flesh means that this word became man. He took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and was made like us in every respect, but without sin. Now, that doesn't mean that the word ceased to be God or that he became somehow less God, or he converted his divinity into humanity. No, to use the words of the Chalcedonian definition, the properties of each nature were not taken away by the union, but the properties of each nature were preserved whole and entire in the union, such that we worship Jesus Christ, one person who is fully God, and fully man in every respect. Now that is a very big, a very bold claim. And it's a difficult claim to understand if indeed it is possible to understand such a claim. But for John, it's not just important that it happened or even how it happened. For John, I think the central concern is why it happened. Why did the word become flesh? And the way John spells it out is in verse 14 in three things. Have a look at that. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. This is a demonstration of God dwelling. Two, that through this we have seen his glory. There is a, a visible manifestation of the glory of God, and three, this glory is a glory which is full of grace and truth. Dwelling, glory, grace, and truth. This is going to help our understanding of what it means that the word became flesh and why. But now remember, how did we understand everything else in John's prologue? Well, to understand it, we have to look backwards into the Old Testament, and we have to look forwards into the rest of John's Gospel. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. Let us look back into the Old Testament, and specifically into the book of Exodus. Where do we see God dwelling with his people in Exodus? Well, we see it at a place called the tabernacle. Now, if you've never heard of that before, don't worry, it's a very simple concept. The tabernacle was a big tent that sat in the middle of the Israelite camp. And this tent said one very important thing. It said that God dwelt with his people. He was with them as their God in their camp. God was present amongst his people. But whilst it said that, the tabernacle also said that that God was still distant from his people, that he was coming close, but not too close. And the reason for that remained the sin, the evil of the people. It's the same problem that we encountered last week. God is a God of light. He is a God of absolute moral purity. He is a light which overcomes all darkness wherever he finds it. And what do we learn about us last week? That men love darkness and they hate the light. Why? Because our deeds were evil. See, we think that God dwelling with his people would be a good thing, and it is. But when God dwells with sinful people, there is a profound Problem. And so that is why the tabernacle said that God was dwelling with his people, but there was yet a distance, and a distance because of sin. Second, glory. Glory is connected to the tabernacle. We read in Exodus 40 that the glory of God filled the tabernacle. That is, there was a visible manifestation that God was present in the camp. But again, This glory was veiled, it was concealed, it was partially hidden through a cloud. God is saying that I am with you and you can see that I am with you, but you can't look too closely because no one can see me and live. That's glory. And lastly, grace and truth. Now, to understand this, we've got to look back to our Old Testament reading just now. In that reading, Moses, dealing with the sin of the people of Israel, is talking with God. And in that context, Moses asks, he makes a bold claim. He says to God, show me your glory. This glory which is concealed behind the cloud, God, show me your glory. Now, what do you think Moses might have seen? What do you think is the glory of God? What do you characterize as glory? We might say with the psalmist that the heavens proclaim the glory of God, that we might look at the planets and the stars and the galaxies, the infinity of the universe and say this is God's glory. The immensity of his power, the wonder of his works and of his ways. But in Exodus, when God reveals his glory to Moses, it isn't a demonstration of his power, but it's the proclamation of his name. The name reveals, makes known the glory of God. And if that's hard for us to understand, well, it's because for us, we don't use the word name in the same way that the Bible does. If you talk about my name, I'm Andy. You can pick me out of a crowd by saying Andy. Although you better not say that in St Mary's because otherwise you get 10 people turning round. But in the Bible, someone's name isn't just an arbitrary designation to pick them out from a lineup. A person's name represents the sum total their characteristics, their attributes, their qualities, their reputation. The name represents the person in all of his fullness. That is why profaning the name of God is so serious, because it's not just using his name in an inappropriate way, but it's slandering his character and his qualities and his attributes. So what do we see in the Exodus? What is God's name? What, are, what is his reputation? What is his qualities, his characteristics, his attributes? How does God make himself known? Well, what we see in Exodus 34, in verse 5, the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord and he passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a god Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where is the glory of God? The glory is revealed in his name, in his reputation. And what is that reputation? That he is a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, how does this help us to understand Christ? Well, if we turn back to John 1, verse 14, and we read it again, we now read it with fresh eyes. See, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That is, he literally tabernacled amongst us. Jesus pitched his tent among us, just as God pitched his tent with the people of Israel. This is God dwelling with us in the flesh. Furthermore, we have seen his glory, just as the Israelites would behold the glory of God, the glory veiled and concealed in the cloud. In the person of Christ, God in the flesh, the glory of God is now visible and seen in fullness. And what is that glory? Well, it is the same glory that Moses understood It is a glory that represents the character, the quality of God as a God full of grace and truth. That word truth being frequently used in the Old Testament to translate the word faithfulness. God is a God who is a covenantly faithful God, full of mercy, grace, steadfast love and faithfulness. You want to know what God is like. You want to behold God's glory. You want to understand his qualities, his characteristics, his attributes. It is revealed in his covenant, faithfulness, the fullness of his grace and truth. Now, how does this apply to us Well, I'm going to suggest one simple way, and then we'll look at a a more detailed way in a moment. Uh, After asserting the eternal pre-existence of the Son, again in verse 15, John resumes in verse 16 and says that from that fullness, the fullness of grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace. And he continues in verse 17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That is, in the Old Testament, there was a manifestation of God's grace. He dwelt with them as their God. He made his glory known to them. He was a God of mercy and love and faithfulness. But for us, in the person of Christ, we have an even greater revelation than that mediated through Moses. We have a grace that is a greater grace, a grace upon grace, a grace instead of grace, a full and final demonstration of grace. And the reason for this is that Jesus is different to Moses because Moses, as great as he was, was never at the father's side and was but a mere man. But Jesus is the only God, verse 18 the one who is at the Father's side. And so, therefore, Jesus makes God known and who he is in all of his fullness and all of his glory. Well, then, to conclude how this applies to us, I want to think about one theme. There are many things that we could look at in these verses, but I have to choose one. And I'm going to think about that idea of glory a bit more. I said that to understand the prologue, we've got to look back into Old Testament and forward into the John's Gospel. Let's do that now. Where do we see glory in John's Gospel? Well, in chapter 17, Jesus has an eternal pre-existent glory because he is God. He has glory with his father before the world existed. And in uh, the rest of John's gospel, this glory is manifested in signs and in miracles. At the wedding of Cana in Galilee, chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus manifested his glory. And as we keep going, as we keep looking at the signs and miracles, in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus, that great miracle of resurrection, Jesus was showing the glory of God. But I don't think that's where John primarily lands with glory. I don't think that's his ultimate focus, as important as it is. Now, for John, the glory of God, which is revealed in Christ, is ultimately revealed through the cross of Christ. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 23. John 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There is an hour here, a specific time and a place, a particular moment when the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be glorified. And he explains in verses 24 to 26 about his death, and then in verse 27 he says this and now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this purpose i have come to this hour father glorify your name what is the hour in which jesus would be glorified what is the hour in which jesus would glorify his his father it is the hour in which he would be troubled it is the hour that he was sent for. It is the hour of his cross. That is where glory is revealed. Now we might think that that is bizarre, strange, a bit unusual to say the very least. Glory is not thought of in terms of death and agony and suffering and shame and ignominy. But when we understand that glory is the revelation of who God is in all of his characters, his qualities, his attributes. When we understand that glory reveals God as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in mercy and grace, well, then it makes sense that the cross is a revelation of glory. You want to know who God is like? You want to know why our God is distinct from all other gods, It's not in power. Many people confess that God is omnipotent. It's not in knowledge. Many people confess that God is omniscient. It's not in infinity. Many people claim that God is infinite, eternal and unchangeable. No, but we confess that God is a God who has revealed himself in mercy and grace and love, and he has revealed it through the self-giving of the cross of Christ, the Father giving us the infinitely precious person of his Son to death for us, so that by believing in him and through his death we may have life, and the Son willingly laying down that life for us. This tells us who God is. This reveals the attributes of our God. This reveals the glory of our God. This is a God who is worthy of all worship, honor, and praise, the God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God of grace and truth. Now, if that is the case, brothers and sisters, then to be godly, to be like God, To be sons of God, his own beloved children, means reflecting these qualities, these characteristics, these attributes. And it means living a life that is not just Christ-centered, but cross-centered. Because it is through suffering and through the love that would lead us to suffering that we see the glory of God. Now, last week, I said that there was a a peculiar parallel between the beginning of John and the end of John. And I think we see something similar this week. John begins by talking about the glory of God. And in the end of his gospel, when Jesus is speaking to his beloved disciple and about Peter, he says concerning Peter this, chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. How do you imagine that Peter, the great apostle, the leader of the apostles, would glorify God? Do you think it would be in the miracles in Acts? Do you think it would be at the sermon at Pentecost? Do you think it would be the great and powerful preaching, the thousands of people who came to believe in Christ? Do you think it would be an oratorical power? Do you think it would be in great missionary journeys? Do you think it would be in the demonstration of power and miracles and might or speaking in tongues or any of these things? In John Peter would glorify God. He would live a life to glorify God in the manner of his death. He would become like his Lord and he would suffer crucifixion. Peter is the model for us. We think sometimes we want to glorify God and mysteriously that coheres with us being great and us being glorified. But when we think about that, it is a misunderstanding of the cross and is a misunderstanding of glory. You want to be great for God? You want to glorify God? Then you seek the life of the cross. You seek the glory that was shown in Christ. This is the demonstration of our love of God. This is our demonstration of our love for others. This is the demonstration of the character of God as a God of grace and truth. This is the demonstration of the God that Jesus Christ has revealed. Who is God like? He is a God who's revealed himself in the person of his son, full of grace and truth, a glorious revelation, but supremely seen in the death of that son, for sinners like us. This is a glorious God, and he is worthy of our praise and our honor. Let us live our lives, live our lives to death, to seek his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself through the person of your Son, who is your word and your light, through whom you have made yourself known as God of God and light of light, but supremely you have revealed yourself through your Son as a God of grace and truth, a God who reveals who you are supremely through the cross of your Son. We pray that you would help us to live our lives in reference to and directed to the cross, that we may seek that glory uh, which is the glory that you demonstrated there. And we pray that you would help us uh, to love you, to honour you and to serve you and to delight in who you have revealed yourself to be through the person of your son. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen.